please turn to the 12th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, and we'll read from verse 25. Just a word of gratitude from John and myself. We are deeply thankful for your kindness, the warmth of your welcome. I preach in many different places, and what strikes me rarely, uh, but what has struck me here, was to see the fruit of the ministry of God's Word. That fruit is to be seen not only in an ever-deepening intellectual grasp of the infinities and immensities of the God of the Gospel, but the fruit of the Word is to be seen in transformed lives, and we see that transformation in you, and not least in the kindness and open-heartedness of your welcome to us. So we are deeply thankful for you, and it's been a pleasure to be with you. You've been studying in the letter to the Hebrews, and you will know that this letter was written to Jewish believers who had come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah of God, the promised one, the seed of the woman, the one who had come to undo the tragedy of Adam's sin, the one who had come to establish the kingdom of God in the midst of the fallenness and darkness and rebellion of this world. But these Jewish believers had been suffering for their faith. Some of them had had their property plundered, we read about in chapter 10. Many of them had known hardship and hostility, and the writer has heard that there is the possibility that they may yet turn back from Jesus Christ. And so he writes this letter, he calls it in chapter 13, verse 22, a brief word of exhortation. Thirteen chapters in this writer's estimate is a brief word of exhortation. But this word exhortation is not really, it doesn't really quite describe what the word actually suggests. It's an encouraging word of exhortation. It's from the Greek verb parakaleo, to, to comfort, to draw alongside, to minister counsel and encouragement. He's not simply issuing exhortations. He is, as a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, coming alongside them and setting before them the grace and the greatness of Jesus Christ and then saying to them, brothers and sisters, how ought you then to live? And so he writes in chapter 12, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. He's thinking back to that occasion at Mount Sinai when God came in a, in a theophany of power 
and terrified Moses and terrified the people and the earth shook and darkness covered the face of the earth. If they, at that time, heard a voice that shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray before we turn to God's word together. Lord, we come as your children, and yet, Lord, with minds and hearts shrouded with ignorance, but we come, Lord, seeking your face, asking for the promised help of the Holy Spirit. We pray your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray, Lord, that your word would make us wise for salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would speak, Lord, into our lives. You know us each and every one. We cannot hide what we are from you. You search out the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. So gracious God, meet with us. By the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, take your word and plant it deep within. Shape and style us, Lord, into the likeness of your Son. Dismantle all that is raised against you in our lives. And bring us in fresh, adoring obedience to your footstool. Make your presence known, ever blessed God. And we ask it in our Saviour, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. One of the most striking statements, I think, in the whole Bible is found in this letter to the Hebrews. It's found in chapter 5, verse 8, where we read, Though he was a son... Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, even though he was God's beloved son. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The life of our Lord Jesus Christ was a life that was shaped and formed in the crucible of affliction, from womb to tomb. He experienced the unceasing, relentless attempts of the devil to turn him aside from the pathway that he had embraced to himself in times eternal. All through the course, especially of his public ministry, you read about it in the Gospels. We find Satan in one way or another seeking to 
turn Jesus back from the pathway of obedience that he had pledged himself to in the eternal covenant of redemption. Even using, you'll remember, Jesus' own disciples as his emissaries and tools. you remember the occasion in Matthew 16 where Jesus has been telling his disciples that what awaits him is a cruel death. He would be delivered up. He would be handed over. He would be nailed to a tree. And Peter says, Lord, far be that from you. Don't even think about such a thing. Cast it out of your mind. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, of course, he could have said something worse. He could have said, get behind me, Peter. Peter had become unwittingly an emissary, a tool of the evil one, in his attempt to turn Jesus back from the cross. And so the writer to the Hebrews tells us that even though he were a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He was not excused the maturative processes of human development. As the father placed his son in an environment of evil and hostility, it was in part to prove him to be that better than Adam, who would not succumb to the temptations Of the evil one, but who would stand bloodied and bruised, but yet stand unflinchingly, who would not turn back, who would refuse to step aside to escape the cost of pledged obedience. And so the writer, in part, wants to say to these Hebrew Christians. In the sufferings you're experiencing, in the afflictions that you're enduring, in the hostilities that are causing you to consider turning back from the Lord Jesus, think on this. You have not yet resisted, as he says earlier in chapter 12, to the point of shedding your blood. And I have little doubt he is, he is summoning them, he's calling them to consider their Savior, Jesus Christ. They had been united to Jesus Christ, but who is this Jesus Christ they had been united to? He was the Jesus Christ who refused to turn back. He is the Jesus Christ who, in spite of the unimaginable cost that would engulf him in the holocaust of Calvary, refused to turn back. And the writer is saying, this is the Jesus that you are united to. Go on. Go on. And you'll know from your past studies in this letter to the Hebrews that the writer uses at least three uh, instruments by which to encourage them to go on. All through the letter, firstly, he He warns them of the awful danger of turning back. 
the letter to the Hebrews is punctuated with warning passages. I think there are about six in all, beginning in chapter 2. How shall we escape if we, blessed as we have been with the gospel, if we turn back, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? And all the way through, he punctuates his letter with these warnings. He's being a faithful pastor. That's why he calls his letter in chapter 13, verse 22, a brief word of encouraging exhortation. He says, let me tell you what awaits those who turn back from Jesus Christ. What awaits them is a fate worse than death. What awaits them is a fiery judgment. And so he warns them because he loves them. But then secondly, in in chapter 11, which you'll come to in the year 2052, (laughs) in chapter 11, he says to them, let me pause. Let me remind you of the great heroes of the old covenant church of God. And you remember how beginning with Abel and just taking them on on this remarkable tour through the old covenant scriptures, he, he shows them. That the people of God, far from turning back in the face of hostility and even death, pressed on. They pressed on because they knew that God had prepared for them a city with foundations whose builder and maker was God. They did not countenance turning back, even though the cost would be great for many of them. And he says to them really in chapter 11, think about these great men and women who adorn the pages of the history of the people of God. What do you see mark their lives but enduring constancy in the face of trial and trouble and tribulation, yes, and even death. Some of them, as we see at the end of chapter 11, were sawn in two. But the third great way in which the writer seeks to encourage and exhort these believers to press on is the realization that they have in Jesus Christ a glorious Savior. Twice in the letter he says, consider him. You see, all the exhortation and encouragement in the world will fall actually on deaf ears if it is not related vitally to who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And that's why right at the beginning of this letter to the Hebrews, he tells them of the Lord Jesus Christ who, having made purification for sins is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's as if at the outset of the letter he says, now this is going to be the great dominating theme of my brief word of encouragement to you. I want to set before you the glorious finished work and the glorious continuing work of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And he does it in any number of ways you'll remember. He begins by showing them the excellency and superiority of Jesus over the whole angelic creation. 
And then beginning in chapter 3, he shows them the superiority and preeminence of Jesus over Moses. Moses served in God's house as a servant. But Jesus, he says, serves in the household of God as a son. He is as far above Moses as the heavens are above the earth. And then thirdly, in that regard, he says, consider Jesus not only superior to the angelic creation, not only gloriously superior to Moses, but infinitely superior to Aaron and the whole Levitical priesthood. The great characteristic of the Levitical priesthood was that year by year by year by year, unwearyingly and wearisomely, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with blood not his own, the blood of goats and bulls to make atonement for the sins of the people. And the writer shows them really in in chapters 9 and 10 in particular, we have a great high priest who did not carry the blood of goats and bulls into the inner sanctuary, but who carried himself with his own blood and made an eternal redemption once and for all that great hapax legomena of the scriptures once and for all never to be repeated fully, finally and forever he has made atonement for sin propitiation for sin he has turned away the wrath of God he has provided for all who believe an eternal redemption how could you think of turning back from such a saviour How could you contemplate reneging on him who offered himself without spot or blemish by the eternal spirit unto God for you? And so as he comes to really what is the conclusion of the the substance of his brief word of exhortation towards the end of chapter 12, He says in verse 28, and this is really what I want to focus on this morning. Therefore, therefore, in the light of all that I've been saying to you, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe For our God is a consuming fire. Notice the two things that he sees to be consequential to all that he has been telling them. He's saying this is what it ultimately amounts to. Be a thankful people and be a worshipping people. First of all, he says, be a thankful people. Therefore, let us be grateful For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now he, as the earlier verses show, is actually referring back to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. And in two places in Haggai, in verse 7 and again in verse 21 and 22 I think. The Lord says through his prophet, I will ultimately come to shake and dismantle everything. 
I'm going to bring to nothing the proud of this world. I'm going to dismantle all that this world has built to the praise of its own glory. I'm going to dismantle every kingdom that has raised itself in exaltation against me. I am going to shake the kingdoms of this world and initiate and inaugurate that kingdom that can never be shaken. This is what the prophet Daniel wrote about. You remember in chapter uh, three, when uh, in chapter two, when he he explains the the nighttime vision that has so perplexed and dismantled King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel 2.44, he writes, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. It will bring to nothing All the edifices, kingdoms, powers, potentates and potentials that this world has ever known. It will come against that kingdom that can never be shaken. Because it is a kingdom founded on him who cannot be shaken. I will build my church, said Jesus, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Clearly, as the context shows, he is also echoing back to that dramatic moment in Sinai when God came in theophonic power and he shook the earth. But the writer is saying, in Jesus Christ, Something and someone greater has come. The old covenant in all its glory has been swept up into Jesus Christ who who himself is the covenant of God. He not only inaugurates the new covenant, he is the new covenant. Isaiah 49, I will give you as a covenant to the people. The covenant isn't a a doctrine. It isn't a set of principles. It is Jesus Christ, the eternal God-man. And he has inaugurated a kingdom that can never be shaken because he himself can never be shaken. And the writer says, therefore let us be grateful, let us be thankful that God has planted us by his grace in his son into a kingdom that will outlast every other kingdom. Where are the great kingdoms that once adorned this world? Where is the glory that was Rome? Where is the glory that was Greece? Where is the glory of the greatest empire the world has ever seen? The empire of my own nation, Great Britain, that almost straddled the face of the earth. Where is it? It's nowhere. It's nowhere. It prided itself in dominating the face of the earth. And we're now a little island off the coastline of Europe. 
And where will the glory of the United States be on that great day? It will be nowhere. Where will China be? It will be nowhere. Because one kingdom will remain standing. In the early 1930s, Lord Reith, you may not know that name, he was the first director general of the BBC. And he entered the boardroom of the BBC in London and he saw a number of the young executives animatedly discussing and he was a big man, he was an imposing man. He was taller than Chad Vegas. (laughs) And more imposing, let me tell you. And Lord Ray said, what are you discussing so animatedly? Oh, they said, we are writing the obituary of the Christian church. It's the early 1930s. Optimistic humanism seemed to be just winning the day. The church was effete. It had not responded to the ungodliness, the liberal theology that had permeated its life. We're writing the obituary of the Christian church. And Lord Reith stood up before them and said, Gentlemen, the church of Jesus Christ will stand at the grave of the BBC and of every human institution this world has ever known. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus constant will remain. And so we should be thankful. Paul writes in Ephesians 5 that one of the three defining marks of the spirit-filled life is that we give thanks to God for everything. Thankfulness, overflowing thankfulness. People should be asking us every day, what makes you so glad-hearted? What makes you so thankful for life? And we can say, because God has planted me in a kingdom that will never be shaken, that will never be defeated. One of the great marks of true Christian living is just a spirit of unceasing thankfulness to God. Because why why do we find ourselves in this kingdom that cannot be shaken? Is it because we thought one day, well, you know, I think the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a little more attractive, a little more desirable than all the other kingdoms? We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were without hope and without God. We're in that kingdom because God had mercy upon us. Because he opened our eyes to see in the bloodied, broken, despised man of sorrows, the king of glory. As people walked by that cross and they mocked and they spat on their creator, seeing nothing but weakness and defeatness and death and destruction, the Holy Spirit comes and with Open, wondering eyes. We see that cross. And what do we see? We see glory. We see grace. We see wonder. And we're lost in wonder, love and praise. He loved me and gave himself for me. And so we're thankful that we are receiving a kingdom 
that cannot be shaken. Because one day, as the earlier verses tell us, God will come and shake all the other kingdoms. And the one kingdom left standing is the kingdom of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Are you in that kingdom? Has the Lord planted you in that kingdom? You see, Christians are the only people, only people on the face of this planet planet, who have anything ultimately to be thankful for. He says, then let us be thankful. But then secondly, he says, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Notice he speaks here about acceptable worship. And that tells us that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. You read about it, for example, in Leviticus 10. Nadab and Abihu decided that they would offer strange or unauthorized fire in their census to the Lord. The Lord God had decreed that that would only be from the household of Aaron. But they thought, well, why can't we do it? Are we not as good as they? What was the Lord's response to worship that he did not authorize? God killed them. He killed them. Or think of what we heard last Sunday morning. King Isaiah, he did the same thing. He took it upon himself to offer to God that which only the household of Aaron, the priests of Levi, were to offer. What did God do? God struck him with leprosy. He became an excommunicate from the people of God. Now, people might say, and maybe you're thinking this morning, well, Ian, I hear that, but we live in the age of the new covenant. We will come in a short time to the Lord's table. Think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. Do you know the reason why some of you are sick and some of you have died? It's because you're abusing the supper of the Lord. Verses 29 and 30 of 1 Corinthians 11. There were people in Corinth who were not discerning the body of the Lord. And I think that's a a double meaning. It's a double entendre. They were not discerning the costly sacrifice of the Savior, treating it with lightness and casualness. But nor were they discerning the body, the, the fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were engaging in social snobbery. They were looking down their noses at other believers. They were harboring grievances and resentments. And Paul says, you know the reason why some of you are sick and some of you have died is because God takes his worship seriously. That's why, brothers and sisters, when we come to the table and one of our pastors prays, if you have a grievance or a resentment against a brother or sister, God grant you and God grant me the grace to get up and to go and sort it out before we dare take holy hands and place them on the holy bread and the holy wine of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's such a thing as 
acceptable worship. And so the writer says, we need thus to offer to God acceptable worship. Well, what is acceptable worship? Well, acceptable worship is worship that God himself has ordained and decreed. God has told us how he would have us to worship him. We're not encouraged to engage in worship creatively. In fact, nowhere does the Bible encourage creativity in worship at all. Creativity is condemned. We're to worship God according to his word. We're to worship him with prayers. We're to worship him with singings. We're to worship him with the exposition of his word. We're to worship him in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's it. We're to worship him acceptably. You remember how the Lord Jesus in John 4, he's engaging with the Samaritan woman. It's a magnificent passage, isn't it? Jesus meets with her. He, he breaks every social, religious, national convention. He begins to speak with her. He takes her, as it were, not literally, but takes her by the hand and slowly leads her to the place where he will reveal himself to her as the Messiah of God. And she says to him, our father said on this mountain, Mount Gerizim is the place where we should worship. And you Jews talk about Mount Zion. And you remember what Jesus said to her. He said, woman, neither on that mountain or this mountain. God is seeking worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. I think that may be the only passage in the whole Bible where we read about God seeking anything. And it says God is seeking worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And I have little doubt that's one of John's double entendres, one of his double meanings. We're to worship him in spirit, that is, Inwardly from the heart, our worship is not to be formal, ceremonial. It's to flow out of hearts that have been gripped by the grace of God in the gospel. But it's also big S, capital S, by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who comes to energize us and lead us in our worship. Jesus Christ himself is the great worship leader. He is the one who orchestrates, Hebrews 2, he orchestrates the worship and praises of God at the right hand of God. We worship God in spirit, but in truth. And again, that's, there's a double meaning to that. We worship God in truth according to his word. God's word doesn't change with the culture, with the generations. His word is sure, stable, certain. We worship God according to the dictates of Holy Scripture. That's why we need to be men and women of the Word. That's why when, when, when your pastors and elders lead you in worship, you should always be asking, is, is this according to the Word of the Lord? But if you know John's Gospel well, you'll know that the word truth is especially identified with the one who is the truth. Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, worship has its focus 
on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the permeating center point of worship. It's in Christ that we come to worship. It is Christ who leads us in our worship as he orchestrates the praises of God at the right hand of God. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is the content of our worship. We need Christ-saturated worship. We need worship that glories in who he is, why he came. Worship that glories in his goodness and kindness to the lost. Worship that glories in his saving, penal, substitutionary, propitiatory death on Calvary's cross. Worship that focuses on the glory of his resurrection, the triumph of his ascension, and his continuing work of intercession at the right hand of God, and his promised return again at the end of history, when he, with power and in great glory, will shatter every human kingdom and bring to consummating eschatological fullness the kingdom of God that will never perish. God delights to see his people glorying in his son. And the writer ends with a very striking comment for our God is a consuming fire. I think he's saying to them, don't trifle with God. Some of you will know the name Henry Martin. Henry Martin, Martin with a Y, was a student at Cambridge University. He came to Cambridge to study mathematics around about the year 1804. He attended the church where Charles Simeon was the minister who'd exercised By that time, a 25-year ministry in Cambridge. It would end up being a 54-year ministry in Cambridge. And Henry Martin came to faith. He went to India, buried his life there. He lived a short life. He was a very remarkable man. I think he learned 14 Indian dialects in the two years he was there. Translated parts of those dialects into the Bible went to Iran, debated with the great Muslim mullahs of the day, headed back home through Turkey and died in Tokat in Turkey. Why do I mention him? Well, Charles Simeon had a painting of of Henry Martin in his study. And on more than one occasion, he would say to the young men who gathered in his study, He would say, whenever I look at Henry Martin, I hear him say, don't trifle with God. Don't trifle with God. He is love. But no less is he a consuming fire. He is a loving, consuming fire of grace. Take God seriously. It matters how we worship him. But this God who is a consuming fire and who is not to be trifled with is the God who poured out his consuming fire on his own son in our place and for our sake on Calvary's cross. God immolated his son 
in his righteous wrath that he might never immolate you or me. Be thankful that you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And give God acceptable worship. Worship that isn't styled by the fashions of the time. They come and go. They come and they go. I've lived long enough to see fashion styles of worship come and go. Worship him, not anachronistically, not as the Puritans did, not as the Reformers did, not as anyone did. Worship him according to his word. Because he is the Lord our God. The consuming fire who spared not his only son but delivered him up for us all. Let us pray. Our God and Father, as we come as your blood-redeemed children to the table inaugurated by your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray that we will do so, Lord, with humble, thankful hearts. Overwhelm us again, we pray, by the wonder of your grace, by the extravagance of your love. Lift up your Son among us, we pray, Father, because we have not come merely to eat bread and to drink wine. We have come to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ and to grow up the more into him. So hear us, we pray, and bless us, for we ask it in our Saviour's name. Amen.